Let me ask that we pray once more. Let's pray. Father, please come by the Holy Spirit and bless us in the consideration of your word. And may you give to each of us something of the joy that is evident in this passage in Zechariah and in Mary and in Elizabeth and in all your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this message by addressing the children among us and uh, the young people. Uh, I love the Christmas season. I love just about everything about uh, this time of year, and kids, I hope you do too. Um, I love the sentimentalism of Christmas. I love the commercialism of Christmas. I know not all Christians enjoy those aspects of Christmas, but I love the Christmas trees and the Christmas lights, and I love eggnog, and uh, I love the hokey Christmas songs, and uh, all the uh, Christmas traditions. Uh, A lot of Christians this time of year, they'll get a little bit uh, prickly because they, they fear that the culture is somehow hijacking Christmas, and, um, and if that's you, I, I don't exactly sympathize, uh, so if, if you're in the grocery store at Lowe's Foods and uh, the person bagging your groceries says, happy holidays, and you feel you have to go into full-on culture war mode, that's not really where I am. Uh, I, I enjoy uh, the Christmas classics and the songs and the sentimentalism. Uh, one song that captures that uh, is called, uh, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. You kids know that song? It's the most wonderful time of the year. With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting and caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. It's the most wonderful time of the year. There'll be much mistletoeing and hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near, it's the most wonderful time of the year. I find that delightful and pleasant. And uh, I'm thankful to God that in the home I grew up in, I have very happy associations with the Christmas holiday, Christmas traditions, and things like that. And I hope all of you kids enjoy uh, Christmas traditions like that. And I hope you enjoy some of the things that these songs are talking about. There's nothing wrong with that. This is all pleasant and sweet and uh, delightful. But these things are not the main reason why I love this time of year. I love this time of year most of all because it is at this time of year that we celebrate this truth, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what is most wonderful about Christmas. That's what we're going to focus on over the coming weeks. But I want to encourage you kids, and this would be good for all the adults here as well, I think it would be good if during this Advent season, this Christmas season, we tried to commit that verse to memory. Uh, That verse is found in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, and it goes, the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Can we all try to say that together? And if you've got to mumble through it, that's okay. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I hope you'll memorize that verse during this Christmas season. Our text this morning is going to be in Luke chapter 1. It was read a moment ago. We'll go a little further than the actual reading that was given a moment ago, but we'll read or excuse me, we'll consider this morning Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 38. Uh, today is traditionally considered the first Sunday of what we call Advent. Uh, and so let me explain to the Baptists in the room, we are a Baptist church, let me explain what Advent is. If you're a Presbyterian, feel free to glance at your phones for a minute while we give the Baptists the tutorial of what uh, Advent is. Uh, there is this thing called the church calendar. Uh, throughout the centuries of the church has been this tradition to celebrate on certain Sundays particular doctrines and particular truths. And throughout the history of the church, traditionally, Christians 
have observed the four weeks leading up to Christmas Day, the celebration of Christ's birth, as a time to focus our hearts and our attention in a special way on the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, the good news that God has come incarnate, that He has come in human flesh on a mission of salvation for sinners. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to be celebrating Advent together and focusing our hearts and attention in a special way on the coming of Jesus into the world. And so for the next four weeks, we'll be looking at Luke 1 and Luke chapter 2. And the four sermons will be these. We'll consider, first of all, this morning, the gospel according to Gabriel, Gabriel the angel. Next week, we'll consider the gospel according to Mary. The following week, the gospel according to Zechariah. And then the Sunday before Christmas, we'll consider the gospel according to the angels. So this morning, we're going to consider the gospel, the good news, as it's presented to us by the angel Gabriel. And in Luke 1, verses 5 through 38, Gabriel makes these two appearances, these two announcements to two particular people. And so our sermon this morning will be divided between those two announcements. We'll consider Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah, and then secondly, Gabriel's announcement to Mary, and then we'll close with a few lessons for us. So consider with me first Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah. Now let's start with this. Uh, Who is Zechariah? What information are we given about him in the passage? Well, we see in verse 5 that Zechariah is a priest. Uh, He's married to Elizabeth, who is of the line of Aaron. That's the priestly line, Elizabeth herself, we don't get any indication she was a priestess or anything like that, but she's from the line of Aaron. And verse 6 says, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, I don't know if we exactly can sympathize or, or hear that text the way it's Uh, meant to be heard, but in those days, there was just about nothing worse uh, for a woman than being barren. And so Elizabeth is groaning and laboring under this very hard and difficult providence. Uh, But Zechariah, he's serving as one of the priests. He's not the high priest. He's not one of the chief priests. He's said to be a priest of the division of Abijah. And uh, in those days, there were many thousands of priests, actually. There were 24 particular divisions, and those divisions were divided up into particular orders, and within those orders there were particular families, and these families would perform week by week the evening and morning sacrifice down at the temple. And Zechariah's division, we learn, is on duty to perform the morning and evening offering of incense in the temple according to the custom of Aaron. Uh, The twice-daily offering of incense was offered at sunrise and at dusk. And ordinarily, uh, only once in a priest's lifetime would he be given this responsibility. Uh, So Zechariah is assuming this responsibility of offering, we think, the evening sacrifice of incense in the temple. This represents the high point of Zechariah's priestly career. He's probably never going to do this again. Most priests would only do this once in their uh, lifetimes. And so he's going to enter the holy place, and he's going to offer the offering of incense Uh, where the altar of incense, the ceremonial lampstand, the showbread were to be found. He's to offer that sweet savor up to God, and the incense was to represent something of of intercession going up to God, prayer going up to God on behalf of the nation. And we're also told uh, that the people are outside the temple praying. If you look at verse 10, Zechariah's in the temple performing the incense offering, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. The whole multitude is is outside the temple praying. And I think what we're to see here is that Luke is creating a certain scene, a certain context for Gabriel's announcement, a scene of holy consecration that is not just individual for Zechariah, but it's corporate for the multitude. One of the commentators notes, a solemn mood of corporate piety is present in the narrative. What happens to Zechariah would be witnessed by a pious throng. There's this hour of devotion, this hour of consecration. The priest has been chosen. He's offering the incense offering at the evening sacrifice. Here's the multitude outside. They're praying. They're looking to God, and they're anticipating what God will do for them as the priest is in there offering up the incense offering. And now it's interesting to imagine what those Jews gathered outside the temple 
might have been praying. It's been at least 400 years since the Lord has spoken to them through His Word. There have been all these promises that were made in the Old Testament, all these promises that God would bring about deliverance and salvation for Israel, all these promises about what He would do for His people, and central to those promises was the sending of a Messiah. Uh, the coming of David's greater son, all this anticipation and expectation. And I don't think it's speculating much at all uh, to suggest that probably many of these people praying outside the temple were praying, Lord, would you bring the Messiah now? Can I see in my lifetime the coming of David's greater son? When are you going to bring redemption for Israel? Lord, will you hear our prayers and at last bring the consolation of Israel? Well, it's precisely at this moment of prayer and consecration that God purposes to act for His people, and He reveals Himself again. This is the moment. It's been over 400 years since the Lord has spoken. This is the moment that God chooses to break His silence to the people, and He does so through the angel Gabriel. Now, why give all of that context? Why does Luke give that context? Why do I highlight it? I share that context for two main reasons. First of all, I think the context accentuates the significance of this announcement. God's people are gathered around the temple. They're praying, Lord, deliver your promises. The chosen priest is offering up the incense of intercession to the Lord. This is a moment where God's going to act, and it's building up this sense of drama and climax. The second reason I think this context is presented to us, as we'll see in a moment, I think this context underscores the disappointing fact of Zechariah's unbelief. Uh, the angel Gabriel is going to give this awesome announcement. Zechariah at first reflects a measure of unbelief. You can imagine if there was ever a time when this man, this priest, this man of God who's said to be a pious man, a righteous man, if there was ever a time when this man should have been full of faith and attuned to God's redemptive promises, it should have been then. But as we'll see in a moment, he doubts the angel's announcement. So it's at this high moment of Zechariah's career that God speaks to him, and he speaks to him through the angel Gabriel. And now, Gabriel doesn't give his name at first. He waits till a little bit on in the narrative. It's actually verse 19 where Gabriel reveals his identity. And I want you to look at that verse, if you would, because this summarizes, I think, Gabriel's mission. Verse 19, the angel answers Zechariah. He says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. That's the mission of Gabriel. He's sent to Zechariah, and the reason he's sent is he's to bring good news. He's to make this announcement, and we'll see he does a similar thing for Mary. Uh, Gabriel probably appears in a few other places in the Bible not by name. There's only one other place in the Bible where he appears by name, and it's found in Daniel, the prophecy of Daniel, in chapters 8 and 9. We're not going to turn there, but you should read that passage on your own sometime. It's very interesting, the parallels between Daniel 9 and Luke 1. In Daniel 9, the prophet Daniel is praying for the people at the hour of the evening sacrifice, and it's at that time that the angel Gabriel comes to him and reveals to him. It's a very complex sort of prophecy there in Daniel 9, but at the heart of the prophecy is that this anointed one is going to come. This promised prince is going to come, and God's going to work through him redemption for his people. You could imagine, I don't think Zechariah recognized who was talking to him at first, but I think it's quite likely that as soon as Gabriel gave his name, Zechariah felt about two inches tall. He recognized who he was talking to, and maybe those visions from Daniel flooded into his mind, and he would have recognized perhaps right then that those great promises and visions would merge with these very words that Gabriel was announcing to Zechariah. So what does Gabriel announce to Zechariah? We can summarize it under three main headings. Here's Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah. First, he announces that Elizabeth, Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son. Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Remember, they had been barren. They were now advanced in age. And who knows for how many years they had been praying and asking that God would give to them a child. Perhaps those prayers eventually melted into some sort of settled resolution 
We're old now. Seems my wife is barren. She's past the years of bearing children. Perhaps we'll never have children. Perhaps it's never going to happen. But now the angel comes and he makes this announcement. Zechariah, your wife is going to conceive a child and she's going to bear a son and you're going to call his name John. That's the first announcement that's given. Elizabeth will bear a son. The second part of the announcement, this son will be the source of immeasurable joy, not only for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but for many others. This, this promised son, they're to call John, he will be the source of immeasurable joy, not only for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but for the nation. You could imagine immediately, as the angel announces to Zechariah that they're going to bear a son, how his heart must have left with hope and joy and excitement. Could this be? Could we experience in our old age the gift of a child? There was this personal burden that Zechariah was carrying with him his whole life long for himself and for his wife and for her barren womb. And now there's this announcement that the child's going to come. What joy must have filled Zechariah's heart? But the angel quickly says, this isn't just going to be joy for you and for your wife, Elizabeth. It will mean joy for many. It will be joy for the people. Verse 14, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. And maybe Zechariah is thinking, now why would that be? He's no one special. He's one of several thousand priests in Israel. Why would anyone care, other than maybe our close family and friends, that we're going to have a child? What do these two expressions of joy have to do with one another? Well, you see, the angel is announcing to Zechariah that God is going to tackle two problems at once. He would deal with something absent from Zechariah's personal life while dealing with Israel's prayer and plea as well. God's answers to prayer sometimes come to us in surprising ways at a surprising time in a surprising place. Zechariah could never have imagined that this personal burden of his the barrenness of his wife, that this personal burden would merge with God's redemptive plans and these great historic promises that that this voice would come crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. The thought that the answer to that prayer would be linked to the consolation of Israel had not entered Zechariah's mind. But that is what the angel is announcing to Zechariah. I'm going to give you a son, and the implications of this son is going to go so far beyond you and your wife, Zechariah, It's going to affect and bring joy to many, many others. And this tests the bounds of Zechariah's faith. But in verse 14, we have both personal and corporate gladness promised. Verse 14 says, Zechariah will rejoice, but also the nation will rejoice. Because John's coming means that salvation is near for God's people. All right, the third part of Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah. Elizabeth will bear a son. The son will be the source of immeasurable joy for Zechariah and Elizabeth, but also for the nation. Thirdly, they're told that he will prepare Israel for the Lord's coming. John, the son, will prepare Israel for the Lord's coming. Look at verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now those are some dense verses. There's a lot going on in those verses, and I don't have time to speak to every line that's given there, but let's just look at each one. He will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. That would be a picture of consecration, that there were certain ones that would take a vow that they would not drink strong drink, wine or strong drink, as a a symbol of their consecration for some sort of holy purpose. And so this child, John, is not to touch wine or strong drink because he's going to be consecrated in a special way. Then we're told he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, what does that mean? It's a mysterious statement. He's going to be filled with the Spirit of God from his mother's womb. From the very beginning, he's going to be consecrated by God's Spirit for some sort of 
holy purpose. And some of the commentators will actually debate, does this mean like he will be filled with the Spirit like in the womb, while the baby's in the womb, or from the time of his birth, like after the baby's born, then he will be filled with the Spirit at that point. I don't think it matters a great deal, but I think, uh, based on other things that are said in this passage, that we should think that in the womb he was filled with the Holy Spirit because Elizabeth's womb will become a very kind of central part of the story a few verses on from now. What happens later on after Elizabeth conceives and the child is in her womb, there's this delightful story of Mary who is pregnant with Jesus. She comes and visits her cousin Elizabeth, and, and when she comes, the activity of Elizabeth's womb is sort of the center of the narrative. And do you know what happens when Mary comes and visits Elizabeth? It says that the, the child within Elizabeth leaps. We have a baby coming, God willing, do Christmas Day, actually. So sometimes at night we'll be sitting on the couch, I'll see my wife put her hand on her stomach, and I know that means the baby's kicking and she's just sort of, you know, calming him down or something like that. Uh, but, but apparently what happened is as Jesus in the womb enters the room where John is in the womb, John, filled with the Holy Spirit, leaps in the womb for joy. Can you imagine being Elizabeth in that moment? And, and, and she expresses this, when you walked in the room, the baby leapt within me. Is there a more tender image of the sort of joy that marks the coming of Jesus into the world? That babies in the womb leap within their mother's womb. It's just a beautiful picture of the sort of joy that Jesus brings. But he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. You may know this, John the Baptist, that voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, was seen as a sort of new Elijah. He's very much associated with the prophetic ministry of Elijah, the prophet of the Old Testament. And then we have this curious phrase, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. I'll just confess, I don't know what that means. Um, and so if you have a bright idea as to what that means, please share it with me after the service. I think it has something to do with revival and renewal that's going to come to Israel in the coming of John. But I'm not sure precisely what's meant there, but it's something wonderful apparently. And then we're told that last phrase, he will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's the announcement. This son is going to usher in the coming of the Messiah. He's going to make ready the people of God for the coming of the chosen one, the Christ, the anointed one. Now, can you imagine being Zechariah at this moment? We think of all the things he's being told all at once. Elizabeth is going to bear a child. Your barren wife, advanced in years, she's going to bear a child. And, and this child is not just going to mean joy for you and your wife, he's going to bring joy to the whole nation. Because this child is going to be that one uh, foretold in the Old Testament who would prepare the way for the Lord's anointed. In other words, salvation is here. The Messiah is coming, and that baby who will be conceived in your barren wife's womb will be the one who announces the coming of the Messiah. This is just too good to be true. And in a sense, that's what Zechariah comes to conclude, that this is just too good to be true. He doubts the word of the angel and essentially demands that the angel give him a sign. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, and I don't know what the tone of voice would be here, I think some sort of sanctified offense perhaps. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. In a sense, Zechariah gets his sign. Here's the sign I'm going to give you. You're not going to be able to talk until these things are fulfilled. 
Verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. You could imagine Elizabeth walked with this her whole life, a barren womb. I mean, there could be no greater curse in the minds of women in those days. And the Lord does this for her. He gives her a child. And you don't get the sense that Elizabeth felt entitled. Because the text says Elizabeth and Zechariah were holy, they were godly, they were righteous, they walked with the Lord. But you don't get the sense that Elizabeth thinks, well, the Lord gave me what I deserve now. She has a sense God has given a gift. God has been gracious, God has been merciful, and he's taken away my reproach. I say that just to say, everyone who is given the gift of children should have the sense that they are a gift. Not something we're owed, but a gift from God's hand. Well, so much for Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah. Secondly, consider with me Gabriel's announcement to Mary. This is where things pick up in the narrative in a major way. Look with me, if you would, at verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So we're leaving Jerusalem, the temple, the center for religious activity. Now we're going to um, the boondocks a little bit. It, it would be like, like going from Washington, D.C. to like Rural Hall or something like that. No offense if you're from Rural Hall, but that's sort of the, the transition that's taking place here. He sent to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So God sends Gabriel now to marry a virgin betrothed to Joseph. And Mary's virginity is emphasized in this passage. Three times her virginity is highlighted. Now, why is that? Why does the narrative meditate on the virginity of Mary? I think for two reasons. First of all, and most significantly, most obviously, Luke is highlighting the miracle and mystery of the virgin birth. And of course, it's by the virgin birth that Jesus is reckoned to be both the son of David and the son of God. This is the doctrine of the virgin birth, and this is why it's emphasized so much in this passage. But also, secondly, I think Luke is highlighting Mary's humility. She would have been a young girl. Most scholars think she was only a teenager between the ages of 14 and 16. She was a virgin. And the point is, it's through her. Young Mary in Nazareth, in Galilee, it's through her that the Messiah will come. God sets his special favor on a young teenage virgin girl from Nazareth. And what's more, whereas Zechariah, the priest in the holy place in the temple in Jerusalem, surrounded by all the pomp and circumstance of the pious throng outside of the temple praying, whereas he does not have faith to believe what was promised, this young virgin girl from a backwater village in Galilee, not in Jerusalem, 
she believes the promise. And her faith is emphasized in this passage, as we'll see in greater detail next week, when we consider the gospel according to Mary. Now, what does Gabriel actually announce to Mary? That's all context for the announcement. What does Gabriel actually announce to Mary? Again, I think three things can sort of summarize the announcement here. Number one, he first announces that Mary is the object of God's special favor. Verse 28, he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, understandably, as a matter of history, Protestants have been vocal in their opposition against anything like Marian worship, particularly as it has come to expression in the medieval Roman Catholic Church and continues on down to today. Mary should never receive our praise and our worship. And we should not imagine anything like an immaculate conception. Are you familiar with the Hail Mary? You know that prayer? Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Some of you perhaps as kids said that prayer over and over again. My grandparents and great-grandparents are all Roman Catholics. No Christian should ever pray that prayer. First of all, because it's blasphemous, and second of all, because Mary can't hear you. We should never pray to Mary or worship Mary. Having said that, we should not be so reactionary as to diminish the extraordinary role that Mary plays in redemptive history. Actually, most of the Hail Mary, at least the statements that are given, most of them are true. She is said to be Mary, full of grace. She is said to be the one who is blessed of God. Blessed is the fruit of her womb, Jesus. These are statements from the Bible. And we should recognize the tremendous favor that Mary found with God. In fact, if you were to ask me who is the most favored woman in the history of the world, the correct answer should be Mary. And we, along with all peoples of all generations, ought to call her blessed. Mary will sing that in her famous Magnificat. From here on, all generations will call me blessed. And so we should think of her as especially blessed and favored of God. Not sinless, not immaculate, but favored by God in a special way. That's the first part of the angel's announcement. Secondly, she's the object of God's special favor. Secondly, Mary will miraculously conceive and bear a son. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You may know in Matthew's account, this is highlighted, the name Jesus, the naming of the child Jesus is given special attention. Jesus, Yeshua. He's called Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The name, the Jewish name, Yeshua, translated Jesus, means savior or deliverer. And Mary's told this child that will be born through this virgin conception, you will call his name Deliverer. You will call his name Jesus because he's going to be a savior for sinners. But then Mary asks in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, you may be asking, why doesn't the angel Gabriel do to her what she did to Zechariah? Why doesn't she make her mute on the spot? Isn't she questioning the angel, isn't she doing exactly what Zechariah did? And the answer is no, she's not. Zechariah, when he questions the angel, he asks the question, how can I know that this is going to happen? In other words, how can I trust you? What sign are you going to give me that will be convincing enough to me that I can have certain knowledge that this thing is going to happen? Because just your word and your appearance before me now is not enough to solicit my faith and belief. What sign are you going to give me? And what's more than that, he stipulates a reason why he may be doubting that this thing is really going to come to pass. Because you see, Gabriel, he doesn't know it's Gabriel at that point, but he says, you see, my wife is advanced in age. How are we going to have children? But see, Mary's question, I think, is of a different quality. Mary, I think, believes the words of the angel. But this young girl is just so taken aback by all this, she just Lord, how are you going to do this? 
How's this going to happen? It's this eager in, inquiry into what the Lord is going to do. How will this be? Since I'm a virgin, how are you going to accomplish these great things? And then look what the angel says in verse 35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. God's Spirit, Mary, will bring this about in a most mysterious fashion. The Spirit will come upon Mary. What does that mean? What does that look like? Was that perceptible to her? We don't know. All that's stated is the Spirit of God will come upon Mary. And then we have this interesting phrase, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In other words, this virgin conception will be a display of the power of God. Isn't that interesting? The power of God is linked with the virgin birth, this display of the power of God. And the power of God is said to overshadow Mary. That word overshadow is the same word that's used to describe the cloud of the Shekinah glory that overshadowed the tabernacle under the Old Covenant. That famous symbol of God's presence and power that overshadowed the tabernacle. Same word that's used here to describe the power that's going to overshadow Mary. It's the same word that's used in Luke 9 to describe the cloud that overshadows the disciples at the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus reveals His glory in this spectacular way, this symbol of power and presence overshadows the whole event. That's the same idea that's brought to bear here, speaking of the power of God overshadowing Mary. This would be a display of the power and the presence of God. And this should all feel deeply mysterious to us. We are here grappling with one of the great mysteries of the Bible, and we can kind of pry into the language and try to understand the mechanics of all of this, but it's not revealed to us. But what we should recognize in this event is the activity of God's Spirit and the display of God's presence and power on behalf of His people. All right, what's Gabriel's announcement to Mary? Mary is the object of God's special favor. Mary will miraculously conceive and bear a son. Thirdly, Mary's son will be the longed-for son of David. Mary's son will be the longed-for son of David. Look again at verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You know this, right? In the Old Testament, God made a series of promises to his people. We refer to them often as covenants. God made a special covenant with Abraham. We had a, a quip class last year on the covenants. He made a special covenant with Abraham uh, that the Lord would give to his people land, seed, and blessing, that the Lord would raise up a promised offspring from the line of Abraham who would bring blessing to the nations. Well, God entered into a similar covenant with David, the king. And that covenant is recorded for us in two places, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and in 1 Chronicles 17. I want to read just a few verses from the covenant with David established in 1 Chronicles 17, this is, this is the promise that God made to David, the covenant he entered into with David. First Chronicles 17, verse 9, he tells David, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall waste them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. 
What does God promise to David? He's going to raise up a son from the line of David, and this son will reign on his father's throne forever and ever and ever, and his throne will not have any end. His dominion will have no end at all. Now, from this point on in the Old Testament, this promise becomes the center of biblical revelation. You read the Psalms, you read the prophets, again and again, they're going to return to this promise, this expectation that God has promise that He will raise up a son of David. And as God's people are in exile in Babylon, they're, they're pleading this promise. Their consciences, their minds, their expectation is informed by this promise. God has said He will raise up a son of David who will come, and He'll reign forever. And they were looking to that promise. They were anticipating that promise. They were pleading that promise. And so we see this promise come up again and again and again in the Old Testament. We see it in royal psalms like Psalm 2, verse 6, where the Lord says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 89, verse 34, the Lord says, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. God says, I'm not a liar. I made a promise. I'm going to keep it because God keeps His promises. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. You go out at night. You see the moon in the skies. Think of this passage. God has kept His promise. The moon in the skies as it is there night after night forever and ever It's a symbol of the kingdom that God establishes through the son of David. Isaiah 9, chapter, excuse me, Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, familiar passage, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In other words, God will keep his promise. He promised to David and to the nation of Israel that a son would come, a king from the line of David, and this son's throne would be established forever and ever and ever, and of the increase of his government, there would be no end. Hundreds of texts that reflect on this promise, all this data, all this material, all this expectation and anticipation, driving God's people for centuries and centuries. And now here's Gabriel before Mary, the young virgin from Nazareth, and what is the announcement? The king has come. David's greater son is here. And you, Mary, O favored one, through the conception in your womb by the Holy Spirit, you are going to bear the promised son of David. The king has come. Can you imagine? How many years had Israel been groaning? How many generations had prayed, Lord, would would you do this in my lifetime? Would you bring the king, the son of David? Would he come? How many people doubted whether or not God would keep His promise or not? How many people had to memorize Psalm 89, which tells us that God will not lie to David. God will keep His word. And now here He is, through the angel Gabriel, announcing to Mary, I'm keeping my promise. The promised king has come. And verse 33 says, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Everything that believing Jews had hoped for for generations is being fulfilled. God is keeping his promise. The king has come. Now, what is Mary's response to all of this? Simply put, Mary, the young girl from Nazareth, responds in faith. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She believes the promise. And, and actually, we'll see this next week, when Mary comes to the house of Zechariah, and she visits Elizabeth, and 
The baby within Elizabeth's womb leaps within her for joy that the mother of the Messiah has come. Elizabeth is a remarkable character. I wish we had more material about her. She's full of faith herself, and she's a great encourager of faith. And she says in verse 45 to Mary, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary has faith. And blessed is that one who believed that God would keep His word. God would keep His promise. There would be a fulfillment of the word spoken to her from the Lord. Mary simply embraces what the Lord has said and trusts that He will fulfill His word. My time's mostly gone gone quickly. Let's just consider three lessons for us from this passage. Three lessons for us. Three lessons at the start of this Advent season. Number one, God is to be believed because God always keeps His promises. God is to be believed because God always keeps His promises. Faith is a big topic in this passage. Faith is emphasized. Unbelief is rebuked and faith is commended. And further, God's promises are emphasized. I mean, how many promises is God keeping in the birth of the Messiah? How many promises? It's hundreds and hundreds of Old Testament promises that God had made. Promises to Adam and Eve. Promises to Abraham. Promises to Moses. Promises to David. Promises to the people of Israel through the prophets. Promise after promise after promise after promise. And if there's anything we're to learn in the incarnation, it is that God keeps His promises. God does what He says He's going to do. And blessed is the one, the man, the woman, who believes that God will fulfill the word that is spoken to you. And so I say to you, brother, sister, what promises has God made to you? That you will have everlasting life? That He will forgive your sins and your lawless deeds and remember them no more? That He will finish the good work that He began in you? That He will keep you till the end? We should believe the promises of God because God always keeps His promises. As He did it here, He will do it for us. We're waiting, like those Jews, for the fulfillment of all kinds of promises that have not yet been fulfilled. Let's take a lesson from Mary. Let's receive the benediction from Elizabeth. Blessed is the one who believed that there would be a fulfillment of the word that was spoken from the Lord. My brother, my sister, God has made promises to you. He's made promises to us. God will do what He has said He will do. Second lesson, God's to be believed because God keeps His promises. Secondly, God often brings about His purposes through humble means. God often brings about His purposes through humble means. It's the lowly origins of the Messiah that are emphasized in this passage. It's it's not pomp and circumstance in the capital city in Jerusalem. It's a teenage girl in a backwater town out in Galilee who is a virgin. Lowly, humble means that God uses to bring about His purposes. And I'll kind of preview next week's message where we'll consider Mary's song, but she highlights this in her song. In Luke chapter 1, verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. This narrative is emphasizing the relative humility of the Virgin Mary from Galilee, and yet she is said to be the favored one, and she is the one who has faith, and she is the one through whom the Messiah would come into the world. Now, who would have thought that this would be the way that God would work? But if we've been paying attention, this is often how God works. God has always been doing this. The nomad Abraham wandering the face of the earth, the tiny inconsequential nation of Israel, smallest among the peoples of the world, not Jesse's eldest son, give me the ruddy shepherd boy David, a virgin girl from Nazareth, a crucified Messiah with a small band of followers, the simple preaching of of a converted Pharisee and the Apostle Paul, 
Friends, humble churches, humble preachers, humble Christians, humble means. God is doing His work and building His kingdom through ordinary, humble means. And we should not despise the means through which the Lord works. And we should feel a sense of privilege that God uses humble people like us, like Mary, to bring about His work and His kingdom throughout the world. But now here's the big lesson. Children, I hope you're sticking with me. If you've not, come back in now, okay? This is the big thing we're celebrating at Advent. This is the big lesson for us. The King has come. And therefore, let us all come under His rule. The King has come in Jesus. And now is the age in which the King is inviting people to bow the knee to Him and come under His righteous rule where justice and peace and truth will reign forever and ever and ever. And the King invites you to come under His reign, to come into His kingdom. And how does one become part of the kingdom? By bowing the knee to the King, by turning away from sin, by putting faith and trust in Him. And the promise is that all those who do that will have everlasting life. And this is what we're celebrating. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let every heart prepare Him room. The King has come, and may the Lord be pleased to work in all of our hearts. The preparing of room for the King who has come. May we all bow the knee to David's greater son. May we all embrace him as our Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Our Father, we know time after time after time you have kept your promises. We have no good reason ever to doubt you. May this passage inspire our faith that what the Lord has spoken, the Lord will fulfill. We thank you for those ancient promises made to Abraham and to David and to the people of Israel. And we thank you that you did not lie to us. You didn't forget your promise, but in time you sent your son into the world born of the Virgin Mary. You sent the king to your people and you are building his kingdom and he will reign forever and ever. Lord, may we never doubt your promises. May we believe that there will be a fulfillment of what the Lord has spoken to us. One of your promises is that for all those who believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. May we all cling to that promise this morning. May we all come under his rule. May we all live according to his kingdom. May we all seek first the kingdom of God. May we all treasure the king, the son of David, who has come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.